Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 186. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, joined by my co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. Hey, John, how's it going? Hey, Nick, I'm doing great. We just want everybody to remember that we are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Our DMs are wide open. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. I feel like I should have added smash that subscribe button to really tee you up to say ring that bell earlier. Sorry I missed that, man. Ah, next time. Next time. Well, we don't have to wait until next time to hear part two of the story from Phil Monk. And I remember part one being pretty good, John. Yeah. Uh, part one we heard in episode 185, would I would, first of all, highly encourage you to listen to it. I found it to be a really good listen. But just as a review, Phil had kind of a exposure at an early age to doing a bunch of tinkering, both uh, with his father, who was a mechanic, and um, with uh, computer projects. He had uh, early good managers who were eager or interested in him uh, pursuing interesting new technologies and interesting new opportunities. Um, He went from a position of monitoring to a position doing support to a position doing architecture and uh, professional services. Yeah, there was also, uh, you know, quite a bit of discussion about neurodiversity. Uh, Phil has dyslexia, you know, so we talked a little bit about accommodations for uh, that dyslexia that he receives and what he finds useful. He had like some really interesting stories about how he experiences the world as well that I thought were really interesting to hear and very worthwhile to listen to. Yeah, and don't forget to catch the short differential equations lesson that John gives at the end of that episode, which I wouldn't miss if I were you. Yeah, it's like a, a series of springs, like kind of vibrating out of the screen this way. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see that at all. Sorry. <laughs> well, this week, we're actually going to continue the conversation on dyslexia a little bit, but more from the perspective of how can you better understand what it is and how to work with your colleagues who may be dyslexic? And how you can support them. Kind of like how to be an advocate and and support inclusion of others who may be dyslexic. I would also listen for a really fun story about how Phil gets a job offer kind of out of nowhere because of a deep expertise in a particular product that he had. I, I really liked the way that one that one went down. Yeah, that was really cool. He really uh, positioned himself for success there. And I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned. For sure. And we'll also talk about climbing the mountain to VCDX, pursuing one of the highest level certifications you can get out there, at least from a VMware perspective. What what did that take and what was it like with the challenges we know Phil has? And a little bit about how can we all think like an architect? So without further delay, here we go with part two of our conversation with Phil Monk. Hey 
I was actually going to ask, Phil, are there some resources that you might advise others out there could look for if they wanted to better understand dyslexia? There are some. They might be UK-specific that I, I use at the moment, but the, the one that I found that is most relatable is there's a guy on TikTok, and I'll have to double-check his name, but he's he basically just posts loads of dyslexic stuff, and it's... It's good because it makes people aware in humor, I think. So as an example, he was um, he was saying the other day that uh, he's going to start a campaign of, of rather than people putting the crying emoji because they're dyslexic, they put the thriving pan emoji because they swapped the F for the C for the F. So there was this whole campaign that people were doing, putting frying eggs up, which, you know, two or three people on my, my TikTok said to me, oh, why have you done that? I explained to them, oh, never knew that. That's cool. I'll follow him as well. So, and then they've naturally learned and he talks about situations for reading like I have and, you know, memory and ways that he's dealt with certain things, color recognition, et cetera. Um, and he just, just does it in a great way. I think it's really good. I wish I'd thought of it first, but I'd recommend definitely him. As for like formal education stuff, I think it's quite difficult. I mean, there's lots of, um, if you Google on YouTube, there's lots of videos that explain stuff. And But what I've found through talking to people is not every single, not every every person, every single person is the same in the way that they have, in the way that it comes through. I mean, for me, like I said, the, the coordination thing with typing, that seems to be quite common with the reset. I've seen that on a lot of people. Writing and spelling uh, and grammar, definitely. But there are other things that can contribute to that as well, not just dyslexia. Uh, things like colour recognition. You know, I, I do all of my slide decks in a dark theme because I can see it, whereas the white ones, um, like I went to VMworlds for years and they put up at VMworlds, all of the you know presentations would be on the, the light white deck with colours that I couldn't see. And I would know nothing that was going on on the screens, no matter where I was sitting in the room or the stadiums or wherever we were presenting. And I'd start asking at the end of the presentations, oh, can I have that in a dark format? And people go, what, why? And I was, because I can't see what you've presented because the colours don't look right for me. So because I'm, I've got colour recognition challenges through my being dyslexic. So VMware have now actually started publishing all of their stuff in both dark and white formats, not just because of me, but because of the community that, that's been built in, in the pod in VMware around neurodiversity, trying to drive that. Yeah, just, just things like that are unique for different people. So what I would say is talk to someone. If you think you've got, you know, someone that could be dyslexic or is dyslexic, just ask them for their own experiences. Videos on YouTube, the TikToker I mentioned, who I have to remind myself of the name and we'll, we can put it in a blurb or something, but... Um, yeah, I'd say that's the best way of understanding. Thank you very much. And there are some good books. You know, if you like to read, there's the Dyslexic Advantage that's mm. out there about the different types of strengths people have. Uh, one of them is mechanical. Like yeah, yeah. one of the strengths of dyslexia that these uh, doctors, I believe it is, have found. You know, they present it as a a positive thing, right? superpowers in certain areas and for you it sounds like you have the mechanical one where you can really see how things work together and almost in your mind before you even break them apart and put them back together again it talks about architects and engineers and all kinds of different things there are others right one of them is uh, narrative strength so they remember stories really well and there are a couple others but that's a good one and then Oh, man, I can't remember the name of the Sally Shaywitz book right now. Overcoming Dyslexia, maybe? We'll put it in the okay. show notes. But that's a, that's another good one, both on Audible, which is how I like to consume things. I was about to say, it's ironic that they would write a book about dyslexia. 
But, um, but yeah, but there you go. And how does your, if you don't mind me asking you a question, how does your daughter sort of find that, that it, it, it appears in her? Is it spelling or is it, um, you know, memory or? It's definitely spelling. Uh, I don't think it's memory as much if she hears it. She like if you tell her, she'll she'll remember it pretty well. Okay. Maybe maybe even just something you told her one time. So wow. The, the remembering of experiences and things like she's so good about. Oh yeah, you you said that this one time you know three years ago. Really, I did. Okay, cool. Thanks. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that that's a that's definitely a skill to have. It's so fascinating this idea that, you know, you can be like have problems in one area and that might also manifest in as like, you know, advantages in, in another. And the idea of like understanding mechanical things and, you know, as being an advantage. I've always been interested in that because it's almost like a mental model thing, right? Because you can definitely take an advantage that you think of as oh hey i'm good with mechanical things and you can learn other things that are not mechanical as long as you cast those topics almost like onto that mechanical map and i say that because there's been situations where i've seen other people do it and i didn't understand it but i to them it made absolute sense and and one was in like i think it was i was in college and and a math professor was looking at a, a differential equations on the board. And he's like, oh, it's almost like springs that are coming out, uh, you know, and these are vibrating in this direction. These are vibrating in this direction. And I looked at it and I went, oh, I don't see that at all, at all. But him seeing it that way was an advantage that he had that I didn't have. And maybe it was a knowledge thing and maybe it was an experience thing. But if that is something that you have, then it can help with abstract things that are not that exact thing. Yeah. That is a famous John White, not a question, just an observation. That's <laughs> all part of the show, part of the part of the shtick, right? Well, on that that sort of same sort of trends, I mentioned earlier that the way that I dealt with some of my short-term memory challenges was recording originally. Well, the sort of second way that I learned to deal with it, and this was, for, again, from talking to um, a friend of mine who I'd met from another friend, who had dyslexia as well. And he was saying he, he created like a mind palace type mechanism. And I sort of thought, well, how, what, what does that mean? And then he explained to me how he did it. And then it took me maybe probably about two years um, until I was in my mid twenties to be able to sort of relate it to myself. So I, I use now, if there's something that someone's saying to me and I know I'm going to forget it because it's a short term thing, I picture in my head, my, my family home that I grew up in. So I know it like the back of my hand and I'll picture or relate um, something I've got to remember to a significant event in my childhood in that house, whether it be me. I remember when I was younger, dropping a plate of beans in, on the floor and my mum getting angry at me. So I'll relate maybe a, a thought that I've got to remember to that. And then when I try and recall it, I'll remember that event. And then it triggers me to remember the actual piece thing that I had to remember. It works well. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it, but it does. It works better than me recording things and then losing them, or um, recording them and then going on a tangent for an hour about something else and then realizing that I've missed the whole point of what I was trying to record. I guess it's a similar sort of thing. At which point you don't remember the thing that you were trying to record. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I think Nick, this triggers a memory for me of a book that we've discussed in the past, which was Moonwalking with Einstein. That's where I was going to. Yeah, yeah. So this was 
Phil, I don't know if you've um, ever stumbled across this one. Also on Audible, Phil. Yeah, also on Audible. I write it down. It's it's a guy who um, came across like the, these memory competitions and you know was taught this uh, memory palace technique and then actually started entering them and actually won one. And the moonwalking with Einstein is the. Uh, it's actually a call out to the technique, which was. I, I think the competition is memorizing a deck of cards. Nick, am I remembering that correctly? Cause it's, I, it's like the world memory competition in general right. where they have to do like people's phone numbers and contact information. Wow. They do deck of cards. They do a bunch of stuff. But I think the deck of cards one specifically was first the technique is you build a strong association with each card and then your how you know the home you grew up in, you know, and then you know, laying those out. And then, so I think moonwalking with Einstein is a reference to like the, the cards in a specific order in the competition that, you know, the finals of the competition that he won, I think. I'll, I'll definitely look that up. Yeah. That's that. That sounds yeah. exactly like the, the technique that my friend shared with me. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Memory palace is very common, but I, I didn't realize that it was a, um, people used it as a coping mechanism for dyslexia. That is really fascinating. I, I was actually wondering if you had, ever come across this um technique called uh or maybe it's a, a class of of solution called personal knowledge management where you kind of build concrete thoughts or knowledge and then create links between it's kind of like information graph theory where the links are just as important as the nodes so you have like a knowledge node and then links out like oh this reminds me of this this reminds me of this and it also reminds me of this other thing so you have outgoing links and then you might have incoming links but it's all it's very now that i say it out loud it's very like written based so okay there's a couple pieces of software out there like uh notion and obsidian are the two ones that are very very famous but even like there's like org mode and emacs for people for the the real emacs heads out there it can be used that way, but it sounds, it sounds like that's a no, but <laughs> I would be curious. I'd be curious like how appropriate that is because one, at least in the modern tools, one of the things that happens is that they have a visual representation of the thought and then, you know, like the node, the thought node, you put like a title to it and then you can actually see like kind of the radial connections to other, you know, knowledge nodes that you've put into the tool and, uh, so maybe it, it it helps to relate it out to you know different pieces of information and it's gives like a visual representation um and a, like a spatial representation as well so depending on how your brain works it might be better yeah i i, I use mindnode which is um like a mind mapping tool um sounds similar not exactly the same as what you're saying yeah. but yeah i use that for sometimes when there's so much going on in my brain and it's difficult to articulate i'll just whack it in that it comes out in fancy colors and yeah it just just helps relate stuff it it's, sounds similar but not exactly the same yeah it's very similar to mind mapping very very similar like very very closely related so okay then it sounds more like a yes <laughs> i definitely look at it yeah 100 percent. so the book that i think we've talked about on the show is called how to take smart notes and it is also available on audible because that is how Nick and I consume books these days. I 
I was a bookworm growing up. Like I, you know, you talked about, you know, reading two books a month. I read five books a week sometimes, you know, but, wow. um, it also is like the manifestation of my attention deficit disorder because I never had the hyperactivity part, but I had the hyper focus part. So my coping mechanism was always hyper focusing on reading. And so I was very, very good at that but at the cost of like sometimes paying attention in class. Like I would, it's like, wow, you can read so much. Yeah, but I'm not paying attention in class. That's when I'm getting my reading done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I am very curious about the dyslexia TikTok though. There, it's interesting because, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and start, I'm, you know, starting to feel like a fuddy-duddy and like, ah, these kids and their, you, you are. Know, their new things. because you are. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm almost old. I'm 49, I think. But, you know, I think one of the like amazingly positive things that is coming out of TikTok is people talking about their otherness, right? And expressing it and educating people about it. You know, it, it can work negatively too, right? You can have like, you know, easily expressed mis misinformation, but educating people about things like dyslexia and how people have this different view of the world this different lens that they see and experience the world through i think is like pretty important at breaking down barriers and it's pretty amazing that way yeah i'd agree definitely i also came across another resource which was like uh this website mind tools and i think i i originally looked it up um because i was you know hey how do you manage a person with adhd you know so i could kind of express that to my managers and they I checked and that site also has a how to manage a person with dyslexia um, article, which I have not read. So I can't say that it's a great one, but the, the managing a person with ADHD one was pretty good and it helped express things, not just for someone who's managing you, but also for colleagues. So I'll call that out as a potential resource. Oh, that's yeah, cool. that, that just sounds awesome. I'll definitely have a, have, have a look at that. Definitely. I would love to hear about the story that you've teased a couple times now about your move into VMware. <laughs> yeah, so um, I've probably overhyped it now, haven't I? Everyone's going to be massively disappointed. But um, yeah, so I was working at Exor at the time. Um, I think I mentioned mentioned them. So with the channel services, and I um, I rocked up to a big betting company in London to do vCloud Director, if anyone remembers that. It's probably the best product VMware I've ever had. But unfortunately, not the most consumed because they seem to limit its consumption. But um, yeah, it, I was delivering that quite early on. And basically, VMware Professional Services at the time, this is in 2012, didn't have anyone that could deliver vCloud Director for them. So they reached out to a partner, um, which was 2E2. I don't know if anyone ever remembers them. They went spectacularly bust. But they were a, a big partner in Europe and um, they didn't have anyone. So all of a sudden, I had phone calls from uh, several people asking if I was looking for a job. I was like, well, not really. I'm quite happy where I am. Well, where are you working now? So I explained to them where I was. And then the next thing I knew, I was on site at this betting company. Um, and I turned up and you know sat down with them, understood what was going on and um, what it was that they wanted me to do. And was subsequently in quite a heated exchange for some reason with the partner that was delivering 2E2 at the time, who... Um, didn't really believe that I was able to deliver this consultancy for this really technical vCloud director piece of product that none of them seemed to know what was what was it what it was about and they were all you know really seasoned IT professionals who and I was a young 26 year old at the time who was coming in and I, I didn't 
come in in any way to you know try and tell them how to do what they needed to do but i was the only one there that knew this piece of technology so i started working with them and it was very challenging and then all of a sudden a number of vmware professional services guys turned up on site there was about six of them that turned up which at the time was most of vmware professional services in the uk and um they were delivering everything else for the customer and um they were doing like v uh, was it wasn't vrops it was uh, v center operations manager at the time uh, srm they were doing everything else basically in the stack and i started working with them so the two two guys were completely terrible so i stopped you know weren't really wanting to sit with them and work with them so i was just working with the um with the vmware professional services team and been doing it for about six weeks you know we were getting really well and i started to feed into their design documents and, and they were actually treating me with a huge level of respect which was amazing um you know these were people it was a company that i'd always wanted to work for and aspired to work for and these were people that were in that company and i was you know in awe of them for a while but they you know worked for vmware they were in professional services and you know they, they were going to pay coffee with their vmware branded credit cards you know just little things like that when you're an impressionable mid-20s person and um one day sat down with one of them and went no nah, we've got a we've got a job in professional services i mean have you and they went, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it'll be on our website in, in an hour. And I went, okay. So I sat there and I was refreshing all of the, you know, for an hour trying to refresh their higher page. And then I said, still, it's not there. Is there a reason? I'll send you a link. So he sent me this link and it was basically they'd hidden the job advertisement. So I was the only person that could see it through this link. I applied for it. And um, subsequently, an hour later, I was, I had a contract in front of me from VMware and I was offered a job, uh, which I was ecstatic about. And didn't really know how to tell my you know, boss of the company I was in at the moment what was going on because I was sat there expecting to get a bonus at the end of the year. And this was in December. So I, um, you know, I'd, again, to ask for some advice from actually the, the manager I had at T-Systems, who I was a great, a great friend with as well. And he sort of said, you just, just tell them, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not leaving because you don't like them. You're leaving because you've got this great opportunity that a company you've always wanted to work for. So I, um, yeah, so I handed in my notice. It didn't go down particularly well at Exor at the time because they had lots of work lined up for me and they basically had no one that could could take it over at the time. But I helped them find someone that could, you know, did some interviews with them. I had a 12-week notice period, so I didn't start at VMware for, for a little while. Um, helped them fill that role and, and left on good terms with them. Yeah, and rocked up at VMware and subsequently did a year and a half of vCloud Director until I branched out into other, other technologies in there. So, yeah, it maybe wasn't as funny as I'd hyped it up to be, but it was, it was quite funny being in this situation at the time. That's a great story. I guess you never know what situation could be a formal job interview without you realizing it. Yeah, that, that's that's the great lesson to take from it. Right? I'd worked with alongside the guys for like five or six weeks, and yeah, and, and obviously built you know a great relationship with them. Several of them are still in VMware, but were in that team. And the professional services team was small at that time. It was when I joined, I was like the, the seventh or eighth person in the team. And you know, when I left in 2018 to move to customer success in VMware, there were nearly nearly 120 people in the team yeah so it grown massively yeah and it was and i was involved in that growth and you know it, it was a great i was really honored to be a part of it and i learned so much in that professional services organization as well and subsequently the experience and my lessons i learned from there are what you know helped me get my vcdx as well so yeah i, I love my time there do we do we bury the lead there on uh, vcdx i think maybe we should have uh, mentioned that earlier <laughs> maybe at the beginning in the intro, we will say, oh, and we will get to the journey to VCDX. <laughs> okay, cool. So I'm fascinated to hear about that, especially 
it with the additional context of of dyslexia because you know it's a hard enough exam to study for and build up to in the first place and then you know i'm wondering if they there were any accommodations for the dyslexia part and and maybe we should start with explaining exactly what vcdx is yeah yeah sure i could do that so vcdx is the the highest form of certification in vmware so it stands for vmware certified design expert and you get a number when you pass the exam so they've been running the exam since oh, i can't remember the exact date but it's sort of like 15 17 years they've been running it for um, it's a significant time and um they have i think on average you know in every defense they do they maybe have 20 or 30 people go for go for the, in front of the panels and you know they'd run them three or four times a year and and you know maybe one or two pass each time so it's a very difficult thing to pass but that, that makes it sound i've just realized as i'm saying that makes it sound like they deliberately don't want people to pass but everyone in the vc vcdx community do they want people to be at that level and we want to encourage people to you know, and educate them and and bring them into the, the community. So we want people to pass, um, you know, to, to further grow it further. And a lot of us that aren't panelists, um, I'm, I'm not a panelist. I'm not a panelist on purpose because I like mentoring and I like sharing knowledge and I like helping people be successful in it like I was because I wouldn't have passed unless I had the great mentors that I had and I didn't pass till the third time. So it's not something that was um, was very easy and it's not something that a lot of people find easy. Those that pass first time normally show off if they do and, and tell people that they pass first time. But uh, but everyone that passed third, third time is better, I like to think, because you learn, right? <laughs> what made you want to do it, Phil? Like, What's the motivation to get that certification for you? Um, I'm very target-driven. So I like to set myself... A, a, if I'm sat here and I haven't got something to aim for, I get really uncomfortable. So I'd, I'd like to try and set myself goals of things to aim for. And um, I've been in PSO since 2013. My first attempt at VCDX was in 2016. Um, and then I had one in 2017 and one t- and I passed in 2018. So the it takes, you know, it took a while to get to the level to do that. And while I was in PSO progressing in that time, I set myself a goal of moving from a senior consultant to an architect. So I learned, you know, the skills that I needed to around that, you know, further the, the skills I'd learned before around, um, you know, requirements gathering, risk analysis, business requirement alignment, actually, you know, designing and making decisions based on that, justifications and all of the governance that goes around that as well, like how to run technical um, board reviews, uh, to design board reviews and things like that, and how to implement them in customers and, you know, how to have the challenging conversations when you go to a customer and, They've done a design, which inevitably you get when they think they've done a design and then you subsequently tell them that maybe that's not the right thing to do. And you have to try and explain why it's not and relate it back to what they want to do as a business. So I did that. I, I moved to an architect role and then I was finding that the next step, and anyone at VMware would, would still probably be able to relate to this. We'd, the next step from from a, an architect to a, what was at the time a consulting architect, it's quite a big one because you're jumping a pay, a, a pay banding and anything like that in any organisation, you know, you have to justify why you deserve to do that. And that was going to take a while. So while I was working on that and while I was, um, you know, finding that a target that was good to work towards, I wanted something that I could achieve in the meantime. So I set about the, you know, my first attempt at the VCDX and I'm going to make no, you know, I'm not going to disguise it. My first attempt was utterly terrible because I was in PSO and I hadn't had the mentality that I'm going to go for this, try and find what go for it try and have some feedback find out what the challenges are i'm not going to pass first time and then i'll know what i need to go back with the second time um so my first time was very very difficult i did a design that was passed 
you know, through the initial analysis, you submit a design and they review the design to make sure it scores against the blueprint in a number of areas. Um, and I did that and it passed the first time. And then in, in the defense subsequently, you know, I fell down quite significantly. Um, second time was close to passing, I was told. Um, and the third time, apparently I, I aced it. So, um, so yeah, it was, that was good. Yeah. But the dyslexia piece is a good thing to bring into it because um, the design document was one that I'd done for a customer, which they sort of encourage you to do. Don't use a, a fictional design because no one really passes for those because you don't actually have any limits or any constraints that you can reference against. But it took me a long time to get my document in the right shape. And the second time I went for uh, went for it, I used a huge number of mentors and some of them that I still use today, not just VCDX mentors, but career mentors in VMware as well. You know, and they helped me review it, design it. And I, I that's when I discovered as well something called Speechify. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. It will read your documents back to you. So I ran oh, it through nice. Speechify. Yeah, which is it's, it's, it's a brilliant tool and it's gotten better over the years. But you'd essentially submit a document in and it would do that, that reading it back as it's written down. So it'd read it back to me. And if it read something complete gobbledygook that I didn't understand, pause it, go back and actually, you know, change it. So that was really useful. And that was a tool that I discovered in that, that second process. And I still use that now. I like that. That's a great, that's a great additional tool that helps. Yeah. Taking the feedback when you're told that you didn't measure up as hard. It's yeah. It's tough. Yeah. And if I'm being perfectly honest as well, the, the way that they deliver it in the VCDX is, is, is does not everyone of you agrees with it in the, in, you know, in the community, the way that they deliver it. So they will, you know, you get the feedback you'll get if you fail is templated. So there'll be two or three things that they, they'll think you didn't meet. So if you didn't meet the guidance on disaster recovery, as an example, or the performance stuff that you needed to hit, they'll copy and paste some standard responses and that'll be the feedback you'll get. And the response largely from that is, well, if you're going for this such a high level of certification, we expect you to be able to identify where you failed, which is, I, I get why they do that. But sometimes I also think maybe just pointing you in the right direction a little bit is going to be better. Yeah, it's a fascinating process, and it's also a fascinating journey just because the the number of times that you need people with this type of skill is in the situations, the organizations that need this type of architect, this level of architect, it, it's all the time. And then when you step outside it a little bit, people think, oh, I don't, I don't need that at all. Like, this is overkill. And people actually get quite annoyed, right? When you say, hey, can you give me a model architecture? And like somebody will say, no, because <laughs> I don't know, you know, what assumptions, like what limitations, like what your goals are, you know, I don't know anything about the business. And then, like, okay, so there's there's no standard way of deploying this is what I'm hearing. And that's the, the, the tension I think that exists with uh, this type of thing. It, I find it fascinating. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I've had some of those exact conversations, right? So um, it's difficult to explain to someone, you know, the value in doing that when they might not necessarily understand the process as well. So I found myself in several situations, especially after doing, you know, my VCDX, where I've I've had that exact response. Where, oh, can you just give us a, you know, a blueprint on how to deploy this? And I go, well, that's all publicly available if you want to follow some of those documents. But if you want me to produce you a rec you know a recommendation or a guidance or a design then it's going to take some time for us to understand these other elements and i'll walk through like the business requirement what do you want it to do for the business what do you want it to do for performance 
do you understand the risks in what you're choosing and do you understand how we're going to mitigate them what assumptions are you making when you're deploying it and sometimes people get it sometimes people don't but um yeah the, the conversation's real and that happens a lot it's always the the analogy is like can you give me like just like a standard blueprint that i would use to build like a 50-story skyscraper it's like uh you mean without taking into account like the material that it's being built on like is it landfill or is it granite or mm -hmm. like is it a windy place or how hot does it get like you know is it in the middle of the desert so you need different class you just you want me to disregard all of that <laughs> and just give you a standard blueprint okay that makes no sense it just depends on how small of a building block one is talking about it makes sense to say like what you know what would be like a standard like bathroom layout be yeah you can <laughs> yeah. you can maybe kind of get that without you know and you say well you know there's a couple different ways that wastewater exits and there's a couple different ways that clean water comes in and there's a couple different ways that electrical can be laid but if i make these assumptions then it would look this way fine it's a great analogy i've not heard that before yeah but the skyscraper no <laughs> <laughs> i yeah, can get a standard blueprint for the hallways though <laughs> well one thing I was thinking about, Phil, a lot of folks are IT generalists today, sort of a Jack or Jill of all trades. Do you have some tips for those folks on how they might better be able to think more like an architect or learn to think more like an architect? That's, that's an interesting thing. Something I've, I've, you know, I do with some of the mentors or mentees, sorry, that's, um, that I'm currently working with. So, so we, and also in in the team that I'm in now that, that I kind of touched on at the start as well, we, we we're we're, all, we're part of we've, we've mentioned the acronym so GSS being a support team. We're we're part of GS, which is the the global support. Even though we're we're architects and we we react to customers in a different way. The the challenge that that we have is a lot of the people that we get come into our team. It's progression to them from maybe a support background and. I tend to be responsible for trying to help our guide them and, you know, and enable them into um, an architect's way of thinking. And the way, the way I've sort of approached that, I've got a few of approaches, and, and this will probably apply to people that are thinking about, you know, how they would transition themselves into that as well. And, and there's a number of people in, in our PSO team that, that I've, I've helped transition from that as well, in, into that, from that senior consultant role into an architect type role. And, and largely it's about, um, or I talk to people about, don't assume anything. And that, that, that seems to be what, what a lot of people struggle with when they're coming from support backgrounds or they're coming from um, a senior consultant background. They, they make a lot of natural assumptions and that drives them sometimes to just want to go in and fix something or go in and build something without actually understanding what they've unintentionally assumed and unintentionally thought the customer wants. I guess you mean undocumented assumptions. Yes, completely. Um, and that's that's normally a struggle for, for a lot of people is, is the documenting side of it or at least mapping it out. So I don't I don't get a lot of people to, to write down requirements in, you know, say a massive RTM type of way that, that you might have to do for, for, for the VCX and RTM being requirements traceability matrix where you would trace every requirement back to a decision and then a decision back to a risk and then a risk back to a mitigation and then an assumption might be involved anywhere in those as well that you would map back to them that would you know scares people transitioning so what i, I tend to drive people to do is the mind mapping exercise um, where you would sit down and you'd go okay right we're doing we're doing say a, a, a vcf install which seems to be the, the common things now 
and this confuses people as well. That's a whole other subject because BCF being an engineered solution, it makes a lot of the decisions for you. But what I tend to get you know people to do is is okay, right? We're implementing VCF. What do you need to know? Okay, well, I need an IP address. Okay, right, map that out. What else do you need to know? I need DNS. Okay, map that out. Map all these things out. What else do you need to know? And this is where they get stuck. So they fall about all the technical pieces, DNS, IP addresses, passwords, service accounts, that they naturally go to as a technologist. And then you sort of go, okay, what else do you need to know? I don't know. Well, you need to know what availability they want. Well, we're just going to enable HA and say, no, 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 no. You're making an assumption there. Don't assume. Ask them what availability they want. Okay, well, they want five nines. Okay, so what's the impact of that availability? I'm not sure. Well, the impact is that you need this number of hosts and you need this. You can only restricted to be able to have this number of VMs. You're only restricted to be able to use this type of storage, as an example. Uh, you know, else you start mapping it out. So they're risks. So map them to risks and how are you mitigating them? Okay, and then, then it sort of starts to fall in place. And a lot of people then start to realize that it's not just the technology pieces that you might hammer in on a keyboard. It's the questions around what do you actually want the solution to do? You're putting an application on it. If it fails and it doesn't come up in two days, who's going to scream at you? Or if it fails because two hosts fail, who's going to scream at you? If you're using vSAN, you have two hosts that fail, who's going to scream at you? So understanding those questions are what I would, you know, what I try to coach a lot of people to do. And it's difficult. It is difficult if you've not thought of that before. I really appreciate that story. And I really appreciate like the, I think what you just walk us through there, because that is the type of thing that I think as like technologists, we tend to ignore or have a blind spot about the business and, and what it's doing. And, um, that is something that I learned, I think going into VMware is like, well, you know, somebody's paying for this and like, what are, what is it? This, how do they measure success? Mm. Right. Yeah. And how do they measure failure? And what is that person going to be promoted on? Like, you know, what are, what's the board that they need to go in front of and, and what are the metrics that they're going to present, right? And and how do you align, like, you know, your design, you know, even to, to, to something along those lines of your project? I would like to call out a podcast that I listen to. It's interesting. It's the VCDX podcast by Simon Long. Yeah. It's only 13 episodes and... I think that he's kind of gone inactive because it's a difficult thing to do. Well, podcasting in general, but then also finding people to talk to about their VCDX journey is not, not easy. But I found it fascinating. You know, I listened to all 13 episodes multiple times and I got something out of it, even though like, I think I came to the conclusion very, very early on that I had absolutely no aspiration to go for my VCDX. I think that it just didn't impact my job and like what how like my career was going to progress like it wasn't it wasn't really something that and also i think in pre-sales a lot of times we don't have the ability to work on a project consistently like a large project to understand you know and come across a design that we can document um and you know different parts of the business that you know is more or less true but so it's a combination of opportunity and desire and you know listening to the people and like how they studied like that affected also my desire too is like okay well i just needed to find like two hours a day for you know 18 months <laughs> yeah it does, does take <laughs> time. all you need do you notice i didn't didn't mention the, the time and that that was on purpose <laughs> not to scare people <laughs> but yeah 
but uh, honestly i think sometimes it's the getting exposure to the think you know thinking patterns and adjusting and acquiring the skills you know no matter how far down the path you plan on going like those skills are important and applicable and you know the questioning assumptions and removing blind spots those those are all important things regardless of whether you're going for your vcdx so yeah i find listening to other people going through the journey you know helps me i found it very useful simon's an awesome resource he's he's done loads of articles that i followed as well and videos and and you know i've worked with him several times at vmware as well in various functions so yes yeah, simon's an awesome resource there are also there are loads of vcdx communities out there even if you're just interested in learning more rather than actually taking the design but there are some that um there are some that are better than others um so you know don't just don't just go to one would be my advice but it is my advice to any mentees go to mm-hmm. multiple communities and see which one is talking about the advice that you think is going to fit how you work. Yeah, I, that makes sense that, you know, either you need to have enough different people who have enough different ways of thinking about something so that it covers maybe your weaknesses or enough people who think similarly to you who are all trying to compensate for their weaknesses <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, similar. I mean, um, like as an example, when I was doing mine, I, I joined one of the, the larger communities and you know, some of the advice that I was getting in there that I was following, um, are more around presentation deck rather than, you know, the methodology and stuff was still great, but more around how you approach the defense didn't make me feel comfortable around what they were saying you should and shouldn't do. Um, and ultimately, the you know, the mentees, that, mentors sorry, that I reached out to that got me through my, my last one, they gave me you know, a lot better advice, you know, simple things like if you need to put an introduction slide in about yourself because it makes you feel comfortable in your defense then do it don't worry about the 30 seconds it takes for you to explain it whereas some of the communities will tell you completely remove that you're wasting time you don't need that they know who you are but if it makes you comfortable in your defense then spare 30 seconds because it's going to make you successful that's a kind of like customized advice versus uh you know blueprint so it it's, it's yeah. ironic that you'd be going through this process and then somebody would try to give like a blueprint <laughs> on on how to do something without understanding the uh completely uh, understanding yeah. the inputs the uh business requirements of the person <laughs> yeah 100% yeah bill thanks so much for uh joining us on the nerd journey podcast uh if there's people who want to reach out to you what uh socials are you active on yeah linkedin um i do have a twitter um and i I do i I don't post a lot on it but i do you know generally follow stuff on it so yeah feel free to reach out to me on that um i also have a youtube channel where i post up videos for various things so reach out to me on that as well that'd be brilliant and smash that subscribe button of course (laughs) yeah i say that in every video and it always feels uncomfortable when you're going subscribe because it makes me make more videos and then i get no time to create more videos so Yeah, it always feels strange. Awesome. Phil, thanks again for your time. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been a blast. I've loved it. like listening to stories about people going through the vcdx process 
I've, we've talked to a couple different people who have gone through that process now. And, you know, I've talked to other people outside of the podcast. And sometimes there's this thing that leaks through where they they say, well, I don't really use that anymore. And I always wonder because it it sounds like such a structured process, such a structured way of thinking that I wonder if you can't help but have that leak you know, into your thinking patterns, you know, for the rest of your life as a result of, of going through it. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's an imperfect analogy, but I don't think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, Nick, but um, one of my hobbies is swing dancing. You know what? That's news to me. I, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, when did okay. you start swing dancing? Was that before four years ago when we started the show? It was before that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Figured it was like last week that you started since it was something I hadn't heard about. No, no, no. It's It's been with me for, for quite a while, like over 10 years now, maybe closer oh, wow. to 15. But it was such an interesting discipline in my life that was very, very different in the way that I was thinking. You know, it forced me to think spatially and spatially in time, which is something that I wasn't doing all the time and in terms of like body weight and balance and communication with a dance partner it and it just it changed the way that i think i know that it did because i can like point to specific things and behaviors that i have and observations that i make you know just going throughout my life and i'm like oh i think that way because of swing dancing and not because of anything else in my life and despite the fact that I have not gone swing dancing since the start of the pandemic, like that hasn't changed. So it, I just wonder, like I said, maybe an imperfect analogy, but it does make me wonder. No, I think it's good. I think it's a good one actually, because think about it. Any athlete or someone who's learning an activity that has a physical aspect to your point about swing dancing, there's a mental portion of the training as well mental, psychological, whatever you want to call it. And that is the muscle that gets built up and really, really strong as a result of the process. So if I'm studying for a certification, I'm, I'm really doing the reps on that muscle. And while I may not use everything I learned in preparation for that every single day after, it doesn't necessarily mean that it totally atrophies and goes away. The The shape of all that work, like you said, it, it leaves an impact on you. And, and I think it does shape the way that you think and act, even if you aren't reflective enough to really notice. Yeah. I think that maybe from now on, when we talk to somebody who has like one of these really high-end certifications, that maybe should be something that we ask of them. You know, yeah. Does it continue to shape your thinking even when you're not using the certification? Yeah, and I, I liked the point you brought up in the episode about even if you're not someone who is going to pursue this, doing some of the training and adopting some of the mindsets and techniques and thinking can help you fill a lot of blind spots, especially what Phil was talking about with making assumptions that we don't realize we're making. I loved that. Yeah, it's, I think, a really good point that I made. I agree. 
Sorry. Well, right. I'm, I'm glad you don't disagree with your own point. <laughs> so you're saying you would put a plus one on that? Plus one. Plus one on that opinion that I had. <laughs> if there were emojis that you could place on this, John would just hit them all. Okay. I love it. <laughs> no, I, I like the observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of assumptions, I didn't know about the issue seeing certain colors that people with dyslexia have. That was a new one for me, and I'm wondering if my daughter has this too. I'll have to ask her. But the, the light theme PowerPoints and needing something in dark mode. Yes. I I have to say that it's it's one of those deals in my mind where you have this lack of knowledge, right? Maybe you don't know you have the lack of knowledge. It's, it's more like a lack of awareness. But once you come to have the knowledge, it can help you be more understanding of differences in other people and therefore go the extra mile and advocate for them. Yeah, totally agree. It was something that I think had leaked into my consciousness when I sat in on some... Um, user interface design uh, discussions or maybe some presentations on them where people were talking about or mentioning like, oh, we were doing this thing, but then we got a lot of feedback from people who had specific types of colorblindness that, you know, this really didn't make any sense. And it could affect people, especially who weren't diagnosed with having that type of colorblindness, you know, with their experience of the user interface. And so we had to get away from doing this. It had made its way into my consciousness. And I also, you know, now that I think about it, I started to see a lot more dark mode, like presentation templates. And I wonder if that wasn't, you know, because of this exact issue. Well, I feel like dark mode is, is and the existence of it is the true test of, quality interface can i put it in dark mode if not well is it really you know is it really good enough <laughs> and that's interesting because uh my judgment is you know does it have a built-in chat function because <laughs> if not then you should you should build one i i have to say that i was just waiting for you to take that last point and relate it back to swing dancing somehow but it didn't it didn't happen this time it's okay no 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 yeah you, right now, you the, always bring those out of nowhere and surprise me, so it's good. It's good. The, the googliness is stronger than the uh, than the swing dancing right now. So oh, I see. It's the, the Google fault of like, oh hey, maybe we should just build a yet another text chat application in this. <laughs> oh man. Well, John, I think that's it for the segment, and as a result, everything we had planned. Anything else pop into your mind? Nope. I think uh, that is it for me. I just want to. Uh, Remind people, again, that we'd like them to su subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever they happen to be listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore. For John White at The Journeyman, signing off. Adios.
Simon, thank you. I'm sorry, Simon. 